everyone. This is your host, Ian Uhalt. I uh, just want to let you know, if there's anything in today's podcast that uh, piques your interest and you want to check out additional content, remember we do have Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. There's lots of cool pictures, and you can see the faces behind the voices. In some cases, that's good. In some cases, that's not so good. And make sure that you subscribe so the next time we post some cool stuff, you get to check it out. Our guest for today is a man by the name of Alex Gazowski. He is a classically trained chef who has some pretty amazing experiences underwater, a recent scuba diver, and he is going to share with you today some of his experiences in coming to know the ocean a little bit better. So I hope you guys enjoy, and again, check us out. Good to go? Welcome to Ocean Folk Podcast, the podcast where we speak to people who the ocean speaks to. We explore the stories of those who explore the ocean. Here with Alex Mazowski. All right, Alex, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. A uh, couple days since I last saw you. Yes. We got a we got a dive in, and uh, you know now. Uh, we're going to have a little chat about it and talk about some other things. But first, uh, just so that everybody kind of knows who you are, uh, give like a little background of, you know, what you do professionally and, you know, how you came to know the ocean. Oh, okay. Um, well, um, like I said, my name is Alex Kozowski. I'm from here, Southern California. I'm professional chef of 22 years, and I started scuba diving about three, four years ago. I'd say four. Yeah. Yeah, October, I think it'll be four. So, yeah, about three, four years ago, started scuba diving and, you know, still consider myself an amateur <laughs> and trying to get out there as much as possible. There's always someone better. That's that's the yeah. crazy thing about it. Um, so, you've been a professional chef for 22 years. Yes. And so, for years... I mean, I would say I've been cooking professionally for 22 years. I've been in the role of a chef professionally for probably eight to ten of those all right in one way or the other like management okay oh, okay so yeah it would be man like from a management standpoint so in that time did you i mean I, I think we've had conversations about this before but like you had a lot of interaction with food and particularly food from the ocean yes was it when you entered into scuba diving, was there an interest there to kind of know where some of the stuff came from or have access to it directly? Or how did that come about? I would say definitely having access to it directly. Um, more of, I, I've always been pretty in tune with nature, where things come from. And I've you know, read a lot about the ocean and studied the ocean and all things that have to do with you know, nature and, right. and eventually connect back to food. And history in, in a lot of ways. Um, so that's where I'd say the root of my knowledge of things come from. I, if that makes any sense. But um, Well, it is also like the root of where almost everybody's experience with a lot of, th like even with kids, like, mm -hmm. you know, I have a eight-month-old eight daughter right now, and her ex she experiences the world around her by just grabbing stuff and throwing it in her face. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure we ever quite <laughs> totally grow out of that. Uh, well, it does get right to the point. Yeah. So. <laughs> there's, there's, oh. n there's no mixed messages there. Um, <laughs> but I, um, but I, you know, I, I did always love the ocean. I 
I've been swimming my entire life. I've you know, if I've ever lived within a landlocked place or a place that even has you know six to eight months of seasons like on the East Coast where you can't enjoy the ocean or the beach, it really makes me kind of stir crazy. So I've always had that embedded in me. Um, scuba diving was I was kind of looking for a hobby that I would be good at that would be somewhat tranquil and low impact because of the, the work that I do and it's very high impact and sometimes you know 16 hours a day and seven days a week um, hopefully less so less so these days yes it is definitely <laughs> and then that's all my you know my making and doing which I took a long time to figure out and that's a whole different story but yeah, well but you you had aspirations of working in the most high intensity style I, um kind of kitchens right like that was where you you were at one point yes and for yeah like michelin michelin style kitchens kitchens that held michelin stars or were ran by michelin chefs was definitely a big part of my it was how i was trained and it was my first introduction to professional kitchens um as a professional and coming out of culinary school and um i did i ended up i always felt it was good to be very well-rounded in the culinary world which is not a really um a path a lot of people take that or go to restaurants and stick with restaurants and fine dining or they go to hotels and they stick with that type of thing or catering or private or whatever it is like people within a few years kind of find their niche and they kind of stick with it i've always stopped balanced around done everything from you know in-flight catering to you know cooking Whoa, on, cook, okay yeah, that I mean, has cooking to, on boats, so you're, you're the one that we have to blame for this terrible no no <laughs> these like private jets Oh, okay. Like in flight, private, or I mean, they sometimes they would be private seven forty sevens of like some Saudi family that was driving, was flying from here to Texas and wanted forty thousand dollars worth of food for a three hour flight. So you know, you run in, yeah, and, and everything like above. But I mean, these planes were outfitted with marble floors and you know a throne and a Quran and mahogany wood, and it's like you know all the subjects would stand around and the prince would talk about. You know, I got to see all these things being a chef. <laughs> that's amazing and, and um also with that with all these different like tools i was learning and ways of doing things and a lot of times just taking on jobs of my own and figuring it out um i can't i became very well-rounded and when i decided to get back into fine dining a little later later on in my career um i almost didn't get hired because i hadn't stuck to that kind of code and i was hadn't been in that type of kitchen for a while and they weren't really sure that you know at 33 years old i'd be able to jump i'd be able to jump back in with a bunch of 20 something year olds and work my way up again and that was for uh, thomas keller and but so okay for those people who don't know who thomas keller is myself included um (laughs) oh he's um so the most probably the most decorated chef from america of all time, meaning that he holds multiple, multiple. So, what would be some of the restaurants Michelin people stars? might know? Uh, the French Laundry, per se, all the Bouchons, Bouchon Bakery, Ad Hoc. I mean, those are that's really his empire, and it extends knowledge of it within the culinary world and and outside the culinary world it extends worldwide. Um, so he's he's a huge player in in the culinary world. He's a big innovator. He's he's changed the um structure and and the um standards of the industry uh time and time again throughout his career um and he's produced some of the best chefs that people are seeing now today that's crazy so you ended up getting involved with him through bouchon right yes okay yeah 
which I had to start from the very bottom at 33 years old, coming out of, you know, doing like a various amount of things. I had a great resume, lots of experience. People just didn't know like what my focus was on, which is very understandable. And it was, I had kind of shot myself in the foot in a way of like, I didn't do the fast, you know, I didn't, I could have been like a sous chef and probably had my own restaurant by 27 if I would have stayed in one line, but I didn't, you know, like I, I'm at right now at 42, I'm really just starting to, it's, it's all starting to pay off for me. That's cool. In a better way. So how would you compare starting at the bottom in a restaurant to starting off in scuba? <laughs> uh, well, I guess it depends. You know what? It, this is a great way to talk about because, because I, I, I think I can, at least from my perspective, I can compare it to, I mean, like when you start off, starting off cooking, if you have no context really to it or, or, you're, or it's your first job or you're, you know, just starting off in the culinary world, um, it's scary, it's shocking, it, um, you know, it makes you question yourself and, and what, it, what you're doing and why you want to do it and why you even thought about doing this. You know, there's a lot of things that come with it. Okay, I'm so glad you said that because that is the first thing I tell anybody who goes mm -hmm. into a scuba class is like, listen, it's not that scuba diving or any water sport is really hard. It's, you know, can you persevere past your own discomfort? Yeah. Because there's everybody, I don't care who you are, what you do, how intense you are. You could be, you know... Uh, uh, you know, a war vet, you could be a police officer, you could be, you know, whoever it is. We all have something hmm. that causes us discomfort. And if, if the weird thing is everybody looks at the ocean and they go, it's so beautiful, it's so serene, it's all these things. But interacting <laughs> with the ocean can be anything but that. Yes. Interacting with the ocean can be a street fight. Which you get, you know, knocked down and thrown around, and you know you have fluids coming out of you. <laughs> it's, it's, it can be really, Absolutely. not always, but it's like you your level of discomfort just rises if if you're not careful. And some people manage it better than others, and some people just happen to come into ocean sports with uh, life experiences that give them a little bit of an edge. But I've also seen people who were the least likely to pers persevere in it, mm -hmm. fight past it with their own sheer, sheer will. Yeah. Those, are, those people are shocking. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and always... they impress me, and that's one of the reasons I like to be around um, ocean sports, because sometimes you see these people rise out of it. It's really cool. And I've seen, you see the same things in like professional kitchens, too. Some people are just come in, you're like, oh, this person's completely weak, they're fragile, they don't have thick skin, you know, they've never been burned. You know, like, like they're not going to make it, you know, and, and they end up like turning a corner and, you know, doing, doing amazing things. Next thing you know, they're, you know, they're, they're your sous chef like three years later, you know, and you're like this guy, you know, and that person could be a great example to other people that are not, you know, that don't have their confidence or, you know, are really struggling to get through it or have been maybe doing it for a long time and lost the spark, you know. That's um, cool. Which, which is something that happens a lot. People get burned out. Um, but go back to how it relates to scuba diving and starting off. Um, so I can understand how a lot of people, yeah, don't have those questions, don't really dig deep into themselves to figure out if this is something, you know, if it would be something that's good for them or even how they'll react to it. Um, I would liken my experience with scuba diving closer to my experience with getting back into fine dining whereas yeah. i've been swimming my whole life and i understand water and movement and, and how to be very comfortable in water 
never breathed through a tube for long periods of time 80 to 100 feet down though you know so yeah the introduction to scuba diving was very easy for me like i, I felt I, it felt very natural until yeah. you get to that point where i think every human being realizes that like there's all this pressure around me and i'm underwater and anything can go wrong and even if i can you know even if I live to make it to the surface in the worst case scenario, I'll probably suffer something really horrible, you know, physically. And that, well, but and the, that can put, you know, that can put a lot of fear and a lot of doubt into your well, mind very But that's easily. the thing, though. Okay, but that's, so that's another thing. So scuba diving is the opposite of afraid of heights, right? It's almost yes, like sometimes just don't, don't, don't look up. Yeah. Don't look yeah. up. If the water is clear, don't look up. If you're really oh well yeah dude I make so, a point to spin a couple times yeah <laughs> see if I can see light well, or something you know? <laughs> sometimes it's good but like for instance um you know, Marie my Marie my girlfriend mm -hmm. she was out on a dive and we were at Catalina and the water's clear and usually the clearer the water the more comfortable people feel mm -hmm. well she made the mistake of looking up this was like on one of her first dives and she could see how much water was between her and air and in that moment she describes it as feeling like the ocean was on top of her wow. which which it was yeah. it was all in her head and i just i i gave her a light to look at something <laughs> in a rock and she was fine you know it and that works with everybody right if you're looking down and you're focused on something oh a fish like you don't you're not yeah. thinking about bigger stuff yeah which I feel, I mean, for me, it's more of a, I feel, or at least I mentally, when I go into it, I try to become one with the water, I would say, you know? Like, if the water pushes one way, you don't that's fight deep. it, you know? That's like, deep. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, I guess that's just the... Are the, you the first person to ever say that? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's a psychology. I mean, I approach things like that a lot, a lot of different things in, in that sense, but sort of like, with water, I've always felt like, you know succumbing to it in a certain way is the best way to deal with it because you can't fight it and it's a very powerful force you know it's one of the one of the four elements um that controls this planet i had a i had a friend who i went to school with and he always did better than me on tests <laughs> and he would say i'd be like dude what did you did you what did you study how did you know it was on the test what it says he's like ian i just i looked at the test and i just was the test <laughs> And I want to hit him so bad, <laughs> right in the face. He'll still do it from time to time. But yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree with you that, um, you know, that is one of the things that people try and do in the beginning is they try and fight the ocean. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's about finding your, it's finding how to move with it. Yeah. You fight the ocean, you're just going to get yourself exhausted and hurt. Yeah. Um, you had a new-ish experience yes. uh one of our last dives. Yes. You got to have a free ascent in totally greened out water. Yes. Which is, which, <laughs> by the way, it happened late for you. It's a uh -oh. freaky, it's a freaky, it happened on my fourth dive after being certified, I think it was. I did a free ascent and, uh, you know, I call it, I call it the green room, but that that's like used for everything else, but where you can, the visibility is good enough where you mm -hmm. know you're in an open space, but not good enough where you can see the bottom or the surface really. Yeah. And you just feel naked and exposed in my, the water. My problem with that was, because I've, I've done the, I've done that, I mean, on the oil rig dives, which I loved, that free, 
you know, there's no bottom pretty much. I mean, it's not attainable and, you know, and you, and, and finding the balance and then having to do the safety stop, like in, in that much open water. And so, you know, the, the, not a problem if the conditions are right. This was, but you can this still was, see the rigs. <clears throat> yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. And you can see the fire and stuff like above coming out <laughs> of them. And, you know, so you for those who sometime. are listening in <laughs> California, Long Beach, um, they have a series of ra- uh, oil rigs that you can scuba dive on three out of the five, mm. I think. And um, the deepest one, the bottom is at 700 feet. The shallowest one, the bottom is at 300 feet, all past recreational depths, which we're not tech diving on these. Um, and you can go out, get dropped off at the edge of these as long as there's no crew boats or anything going on, and you dive across the pillars and they're just covered with scallops um and that's what that's what uh, that's <laughs> one of the things that's probably one of my favorite dives here too yeah it's just it's amazing it's just a whole different world but um but yeah the uh safety stopping and, and like f- the free ascent no ropes and stuff in that condition was fine even out being in open water uh this one was a lot trickier even though we were in 30 34 feet of water i think but it doesn't <laughs> but that's the weird thing man but like perception so when visibility is as low as it was that perception of how deep you are where you are just goes right out the window yeah. it becomes very like in the moment which is one of the things i love about scuba diving we should probably talk about good things we're talking about all <laughs> horror stories right now if anybody's listening they're like i'm not going to do that but one well, of the things take i take away from them though well that's you... that's the challenging kind of interesting adventurous aspect of it is like you can find yourself in situations that you have to like resort to your training and thinking to get through yeah yeah that you 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 do just have to kind of be a little bit mentally tough um i think a lot of people that scuba dive though have the vision i mean and i kind of did in the beginning too uh, at least building up to like you know the first dives we did you know to get certified um sorry i was leaning back a bit but um watch your arm on the table but i um you know i thought it was going to be all like you know like we see the pictures of the cayman islands and the bahamas well it can't be that yeah and and i mean i think some people's entire scuba experiences are more like that and i can't imagine there being a lot of instances in those situations where you have to like resort to your training or use a dive knife or well, listen, man. I'm sure it happens. I but... was gonna say, don't, don't uh, judge a book by its cover on Scuba Diver <laughs> magazine. Uh, there's a lot of so my friends were in Palau, mm-hmm. and they were out doing a safety stop above uh, a wreck, or maybe they were doing something blue water, and they got caught in a down current, and it was something where the surface water was just being. I mean, it's a down current, sucked yeah. down, and the, uh, the entire group, including the dive master, uh, got pulled down to about 130 feet before wow. all of them had to, I mean, out of an emergency, this is not a good practice, yeah. had to inflate their BCDs to the point to fight the current. Wow. And even with inflating a lot of their BCDs and kicking up, a lot of them struggled. Yeah. And it was terrifying. And that's Palau. Palau is like, <laughs> bam, cover of magazines, yeah. beautiful, like, but... Those some of those places that look pristine and beautiful, they have unforeseen hazards. Wow. Um, that being said, like you know, it I'm, is it is a lot nicer not to strap on a giant rubber suit like you yeah. have to do in California <laughs> yeah, with I, the hood choking you off, like some sort of BDSM scene. 
Uh, I, I dove um, probably the most calm, like tropical dive was like down on Cabo and La Paz, which was yeah. Yeah. Really. You you and so you and did you like, like La Paz? Loved it. I yeah. have not been. I see amazing photos um, from. I, I think actually off the coast of this town or the city of La Paz, it's not. It seems like it's all like paddleboarding. <laughs> so yeah. it's, like, it's like really shallow and it like goes out for a while. But you get these tours out to these um these islands that are UNESCO heritage like World Heritage sites and stuff. And that's like there's turtles out there. There's oh, whale sharks and colonies of sea lions. I've been dying to get down there. It's cool. I'll go with you. Uh, well, <laughs> I love. We, I we love, will talk. Loved it down there. <laughs> I, listen, I got, that was the most comfortable dive ever. I got a couple free weekends coming up. Let's see. <laughs> um, but uh, so recently we went on this dive. So let's talk about this dive. I, did we finish? Did we? Uh, did we finish the story of how you got into diving? You got into diving. Oh, yeah. Oh well. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, to sum it up, I was looking for, I was looking for some like oh, a for hobby, a hobby, something kind of different than you know, than just working all the time and and being in the culinary world. And I was looking for you know something that, that I just thought would naturally go well with me. I always loved water and swimming and. And that's how you got into it. And then pretty much. And then you saw an online ad and you're like, let's do this. Yeah. Like a friend. Well, (laughs) I was talking to a friend of mine and my sister was telling me about it because she does it when she goes on vacation like every year. So like she's like certified, but she's just (laughs) um bless you. She's just like super recreational. You know, she only does it like she doesn't do it every all the time. She just does it, goes out with people, you know, she's um when she's on vacation. But um so they kinda like just told me and convinced me and then a friend was like, Oh look, you can get certified. There's like a living social like thing. That was, you know, two hundred and twenty dollars for your certification at Pacific Wilderness. So, oh man, <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh, that's you a were good one deal. of those. Yep, <laughs> one of those. Hey, I got a bucket list. Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't for bucket list. It was no, it was, no, no. I, I was looking for. I know. For, I was looking for something to attach myself and my free time to. Yeah, and and look, and as far as hobbies go, um, you know, I think scuba diving and free diving it's one of those things that especially in this day and age when there's so much going on and in in los angeles especially there's so many people when you can go out to a place and just be in the moment and shut everything else down and just focus on that and just let everything just disappear into the background and just do your thing for an hour underwater (laughs) like oh it's amazing it's the best it, therapy. It's it really does. It's a cleansing. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a cleansing uh, in a lot of ways. It's cleansing of your consciousness, if you will. Um, I like the the quarantine was so bad for that because I was just like, yeah. ooh, just locked in a locked in the house. <laughs> Would have been fine if the beaches were open. I, yeah, but people had to go ruin it, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just the water was open. Yeah. <laughs> well. Th- that that was the that was the thing that was driving me nuts. I'm like, is there anything more quarantiny than yeah, like, how do I get from here to the water without touching anything? Yeah, <laughs> like once I'm once I'm underwater, self-contained breathing apparatus. That's yeah. more than what the doctors have in anyway. But yeah, so so let's talk about this dive. Mm-hmm. So we had a harebrained idea. Yes. Uh, you being a uh, professional professional uh, culinary person. Uh, and me being willing to eat strange things that I find in the water, uh, there was a. Now this has happened a couple years now. There was a swell up of tuna crab. Mm-hmm. 
which I would like to provide you with the scientific name, but I can't. They're similar, so if some people might be familiar with langoustine. This is the Scottish version of these crabs, but they're nicknamed in the U.S. tuna crab, of course, because uh, fishermen find them in the stomachs of tuna. They're a pelagic squat lobster, which yeah. I have been told is just another word for a crab. <laughs> uh, but I think there's proper squat lobster, and these guys are fake squat lobster. But they look like, if you've, if you've never seen or heard of these things, they kind of look like ocean crayfish. Yeah. Yeah, like a slow, more like stubby, ver stubby and soft-shelled version of, uh, of like American crayfish. Yeah, and so immediately we're like, hmm, <laughs> crayfish. Uh, people eating these. Things. Yeah, and nobody's <laughs> eating them, and there's literally 100,000 of them at our local dive site. So we're like, all right, let's, uh, let's go out and see if we can get a, some of these. What are the regulations? And, you know, California Fish and Game regulations are 35 for things that don't, aren't a managed species. So I think, I think I tried to grab 35. I think you actually did get 35. Did I? Huh. I don't even know. I mean, you got more than me. I, did, I, I don't know if because I was grabbing some yellow crab... <laughs> that I let a couple out or what happened, but. I definitely, like, they were getting out. <clears throat> I was putting some in some time or they clipped to your, to your gloves and stayed. <laughs> well, and that's the crazy thing, but they're, they're, they're so, their behavior and everything about them, they are so obviously prey. Yeah. Like they are just meant to feed other things. <laughs> they don't, they just, they, 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 <laughs> so if you imagine like a crayfish, and then it goes to get away and gives up after three, like, squirts of its tail. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ha, ha, um, all right, I give up. And then, like, three seconds later, it's like, da, 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 ah. They're just, they're they're not, like, I don't understand. How, they only live because they must mass produce yeah. in breeding. Uh, so, I'm sure they have a place in the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. food. <laughs> yeah. They're food for tuna. And whatever their waste, you know, yeah. contributes to. But uh, they're, it's just weird. So it's like, I don't know how they survive. Um, I don't how, know how everything doesn't need them. Uh, so that was another thing. It was like, you look at them and you go like, these are so easy to eat, and yet nothing's eating them, and they're bright red. Maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. those are all signs that uh, maybe you shouldn't eat these. <laughs> but that, that didn't stop us. No. After we checked and saw, like, uh, some people had attempted it and had some... Yeah, there were some positive Mixed, things to yeah. say, and some not so positive. But uh, so, how would you? How would you? So we brought them back. We cooked them. Well, I'll let you tell the story. What was it like going in to catch them? Um, it was about as easy as I expected um, from from observing them the past few times that I've dove with them. Um, grab them by pretty much by the threes or fours. And pack them in your bag. Um, easy to grab. They just, you know, they give up after, <laughs> like you were saying, after a few, like, flicks of the tail. They sort of hover there in the water. And there's so many of them. The hardest part is deciding, you know, where to outreach your arm and make a commitment to a handful. Uh, it's it's really, it's not hunting. No, it's... It's, a, it's gathering. Yeah, it's a harvesting or a gathering, you know. <laughs> it's like, like picking tuna crabs. I mean, if you could imagine if you had a net, you know, like a pool net, like a little open pool net, you'd fill it up just by swimming, just by swimming, not even trying. You would fill it up in 20 feet. Yeah. You know, like easy. Yeah. Like, so that just 
I don't know if that paints a picture for everybody that that they just sort of hover there. Well, well I think it as you approach them, they hover in the water as if they want you to scoop them up. They like they make themselves me, acce- more me. accessible by getting off the ground. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know? it's like oh. Here, let me get, the, you know, you don't want any sand with this. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. <laughs> Do you want to eat with or without sand? I can jump and you can get a sand-free meal. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think their greatest defense is the fact that there's just not a lot of meat to them. Because that was, yeah. that was well, well without, without, without skipping ahead. Yeah. So we grabbed them. We brought them back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you brought out your deluxe burner set, which yes. I'm, I'm. I'm still having a little bit of gear jealousy. <laughs> I pulled that out of storage. I'm glad it still works. Um, and so we were thinking crawfish. So what did you? How did you decide to prepare it? Um, I pretty much just from what I read online and looking at the anatomy and size of them, uh, it, they reminded me just like crawfish. And I had um, on my externship in culinary school, um, I did it in New Orleans. This was in '99. Um, and I was there. I lived there for about eight months and, you know, lived and worked there. How and, was that? Oh, it was Living awesome. Living in New Orleans? It was awesome. It was amazing. It was pre-Katrina, so it was kind of, you know, it was before. And I saw the So it was drier. Afterward. <laughs> well, it was definitely, a, I'd say it was a different city. It, had, it really? still had more of the elements of its old older world like dining scene wise the dining scene completely changed after katrina a lot of chefs went there to help rebuild and with that they brought a lot of refined cooking and different cooking from around the world and different skills whereas when i was there it was very rooted and pretty much how they had been cooking for the past 200 years which was really interesting because new orleans in itself is its own little mixing pot right yeah it's only like like, there's there's whole books dedicated describing mm -hmm. how creole and the style of food and everything was a mix of north american french uh and the caribbean and you had the creoles which i if i'm right and forgive me if i get this a little mixed up but i'm pretty sure that's right the creoles were a mix of the african the african slaves of the like the canary islands and the caribbean um, mixing with the French, the French settlers in, okay. in Louisiana, that would make the right. pre Louisiana purchase for all you mm-hmm. history buffs. And then, um, and the Cajuns would be the Native Americans mixing with the Spanish. So when you get, and then when you see, so you have Cajun cuisine and, and culture, and Creole cuisine and culture. Um, a lot of them ended up, you know, of course, just mixing together. But you can see the roots of them in something more like a jambalaya. Would be more. Is it jambalaya a, or jambalaya? Jambalaya, jambalaya, jambalaya. No, I don't want to go to. And listen, we need to. We need oh, well, to this because I, I don't want to go to. I don't want to go down there and just. Well, be we already to, messed it up when we said New Orleans. Oh, uh, New Orleans. Because <laughs> uh, it's one geez. word to them. That's it's right. New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, for all intents and purposes, we're Yankees. I'm gonna, I was gonna. I was gonna get called gonna, a Yankee for sure. Gonna, and we're never not gonna be. Yeah, that's so, fine. You, People Thought I'd just there. be culturally respective <laughs> of the people of New Orleans. Uh, they're probably, if anybody from New Orleans is listening, you're probably <laughs> very angry right now. I apologize. No, no, no. I think. Our uh, so doing is it is it actually jambalaya? Because Jam- I've always said jambalaya. Jambalaya. I always said jambalaya. Maybe I don't know. I've never been corrected, even there. Interesting. Maybe, maybe out of pity or just un- <laughs> or, uh, an understanding. But, Look at him uh, try jambalaya. and speak the right word. Look at him. But you could, but you could see the um, like the influence, the Spanish influence in jambalaya being 
being a like stemming from paella. Oh, okay. You know, I never thought of it that way. That's it, true. Yeah, I mean, there's roots. Just you know, those are where the roots from it. And then when you see like the the Creole cuisine, a lot of times they'll sorry. Yeah. Um, the Creole the Creole cuisine a lot of times um you'll have the introduction of <clears throat> butter of like butter sauces and techniques um that you definitely see the French the French influence in. Mm. And then the ingredients that come from like you know from the African mainland or 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 African style manipulations of of the um of the produce and ingredients that they had at hand in the uh, in the Caribbean and the Americas. And so you don't see as much of that anymore? Oh no, you do. It's just you had um, You also so just have other stuff. It, and you yeah, and you just don't see it in such like that was really all that was there. I mean, you did have an Ita- you do have an, and have had an Italian influence for a little while. I mean, you could get anything there. Obviously, but the core of their culinary, if you went to work at any great at the time in like 99, if you went to work at any of like the big great culinary temples of food in New Orleans in New Orleans, you would um, you would be doing Cajun and Creole and indigenous food to, to that. So you, you wouldn't necessarily be you know, French or Italian. Yeah, or doing something that was like really like, you know, offer. Whereas now you have more of that influence or they've taken those Cajun Creole things and elevated them to something that you wasn't recognizable 20 or 25 years ago there. That's does that see that kind of makes me sad. Yeah, I mean I mean, it's I don't know. Been great I like financially, I think for the city and for rebuilding and for rebuilding of it. Yeah, but you also lose a little bit mm-hmm. of the soul. Absolutely. I mean, I they mean, lost a lot with that tornado with that uh hur- tornado. With uh that hurricane. I mean, a lot of those cities they allowed to flood and never rebuilt them because they didn't like them and they wanted to get rid of them. You know, those those the wards and the areas that they were just never rebuilt. Nobody ever got anything back for it. You know, and they they wanted to get a lot of those people out of that city. Well, it's it's That's a crazy it's Texas. a crazy place, right? It's a crazy place in the sense that uh, most of it's under sea level. Mm-hmm. The only reason it exists is because of giant levees in which they pump water out of yes. the city. Yeah, it was a swamp. It, uh, it it's all sitting on former swampland that only was at sea level at one point because it was constantly replenished with silt over thousands of years, mm-hmm. and once you build on it, that doesn't happen anymore. So. That place is like Miami in the sense that it's just like if you could go back a hundred years, in some ways you would say, No, 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 don't put your city there. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you thinking? You know, like nothing good is gonna come of this. I mean, they hundreds of years later it's a problem, but yeah. you know and you know, you see stuff like that in modern day and you go, Oh, Lost City of Atlantis, like yeah. that doesn't seem that far fetched all of a sudden. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I think it's the, like New Orleans in a hundred years. Probably the benefits of what they were able to achieve through the positioning of that city were greater than the, the dangers that, that could happen. Oh, of you course. Know, like three hundred and sixty four days a year they're turning a profit with the possibility of like they might have one bad day that screws everything up for a few months. <laughs> Yeah, I was sure going to say. balanced it out a little bit. I mean. Well, and that's true. How often does a Katrina come along? Yeah. So. Not, I mean, right now it's been about every hundred years. It's brutal. For them, yeah. That's brutal. Uh, that, that was such a sad thing. And every time the city changes. It survives in some, in some sense and changes, you know. But the whole Nutria problem they have down there is from the original, from the hurricane that happened in like the late 1800s. Why? 
a nutria. Uh, so nutri- they're an invasive species. They if came from- you don't know if anybody doesn't know, nutria is a giant rat. Yeah, giant water rodent. It looks like a mix between a beaver and a capybara. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, I think they're more related to the capybara. The 30. And if you don't know what a capybara is, just Google it. I don't know how to describe it. It's like a dog rat. <laughs> yeah, they're about uh, 30 pounds, extremely territorial and devastating to the ecosystem down there. Um, they were brought, and you can shoot them like, indiscriminately, ha- right? Well, they have like entire days and weeks where everyone gets together with their guns and goes into the bayou and just it's open season on these things because and, and, and that sounds still... like a bad idea everybody goes in with their well, guns I mean, it seems like a lot, a lot of, of guns going I mean, off not, at the same time not everybody but a lot i mean the sheriffs like band people together and do it like it's a huge thing it's like a tradition to some of the cajuns yeah. and stuff that live down there um to do that but and it makes almost no dent in, <laughs> in the population um, it just crazy? keeps them at bay um, they were brought in from Brazil uh, in the late, mid to late 1800s for fur and kept in cages and this hurricane hit and they got out. And that's how that happened. It's like Florida with the pythons. Anyway, <laughs> so getting back to where I think we were going to cook these things, yes. Cajun style. Yes. And so I had experience um, working with crawfish a lot from living in New Orleans and doing crawfish boils. And um, I have to say, you brought over the biggest pot I have ever seen, <laughs> and we filled it. I did not think we were going to be able to fill it, but we filled it. Filled it, and it's a very small pot in my world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's, it's my bad. Pot. Yeah, I'd say what it's probably like a 40, 30, 30 to forty quart pot, maybe thirty quart. Okay, that's a tiny pot, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's a smaller. Smaller pot I wouldn't even call it a pot. I would refer to it as a cauldron. <laughs> it's like you put I and Newt in something that size. <laughs> but yeah, so we did the um, we did the traditional you know crawfish boil, heavily spiced, uh, heavily spiced water with aromatics um, like onion, celery, uh, whole cloves of garlic, lemons. Bay and leaf. what I was surprised about is you did real rough cuts. With yeah, because, things like garlic and uh, celery. Yes, because we're not going to be eating those elements. They're really just to flavor the water. I also placed them. You saw we had the basket with you know that we were able to pull the seafood out of the out of <laughs> out of the boiling liquid when we wanted to. Yeah. Um, and when we put in all the aromatics, we put it in without the strainer, so that all the things we didn't want to eat wouldn't get into our seafood. Keep um, the nasty stuff away. Yeah, but we, but you still benefit from the flavor. Ooh. So it's just understanding, and this is just a very culinary thing, but it's just understanding what your application is and what you're trying to do and how the finished product is going to be, and then you can manipulate it to be more of a, an easier and cleaner process, an effective process, understanding the different techniques and how you're going to end up serving it. Now, the seafood aside, what shined in that thing was the potatoes. Huh. Thank you. Oh my God, the potatoes were so good. I wish we used smaller ones because then we would have got a little more flavor permeating through the entire potato. I'm not a totally spicy guy, so the size of the potato was okay because mm-hmm. I could mix like the outside, which was spiced real heavily, like just had a lot of flavor, mm-hmm. with like the inside that was just a little bit more mellow. So I could kind mm-hmm. of find the mix of the two that I liked. For me, it was I liked it. it. I thought it turned out really nice. Thank you. It's about a six for me on the. <laughs> I'm gonna go uh, ahead and success. assume you have a higher standard than me. I'll, I'll never. I'm re- like, did I not burn? I'll it? never give myself a ten. ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, so yeah, so we did, we did. Um, they behaved exactly how I expected them to. 
Um, they ate exactly how I expected them to. Um, we did the same thing. We twist off the head, suck the head out, pinch the bottom of the tail, grab the meat with your teeth, and try to pull it out. With crawfish, you actually have more meat and uh, a sturdier meat. Yeah, I was going to say some, that was the thing and a sturdier that was shell interesting. Too, and yeah, was, everything was real soft. Yeah, they were just... I would I would reserve tuna crabs for if you were like on a deserted island and you were free diving for your food and you're like oh shit there's tuna crabs this is gonna be an easy couple days because you have nothing else to do but pick meat out of these things. <laughs> well that not a very not a very effective or fruitful. Um, I still think we should go the soft shell crab route and try and deep fry them. I think helpful. that might work. Yeah, I was talking to some guys uh, last night. And I was saying if you breaded the outside of the, the crab, mm-hmm. like the body, and then just left the two little claws hanging out, unbreaded, just... <laughs> unbreaded, how iconic, right? Like that's an iconic dish. They'd be like, they'd be like uh, soft shell poppers or something. Like we could sell them at Popeye's. I would definitely um, probably do a tempura. Yeah, a tempura. Then, yeah. Yeah. Um, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm. I'm always down to try it. So, were you surprised at how the rock crab tastes? Uh, yeah, I was surprised it was so good. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people poo-poo it. I've had red crab, red, okay. which is Same a, thing. another form of rock crab, up in Santa Barbara. So, there's I, red and yellow. I think, and I wasn't very impressed, especially for the for the price they charged. Um and I, but I think a lot of those places, like where they have like the tanks, and all they do is just like massive amounts of steamed shellfish. They overcook them, you know. They just steam it, whatever long, you know. We cooked these really nicely. We didn't overcook them. We didn't overboil them. We seasoned them kind of as we cooked them. So the product that we got was, I think, a little bit of you know of the technique and stuff that we used at the same time. And but um, I thought they were amazing. I would eat them again in a, in a heartbeat. Oh, we will. <laughs> we will. See, that's the funny thing. They're too. not a dungeness, you know. They're not going to be as sweet as a dungeness. They're not going to come. They're not going to be like a king crab, which come from much colder waters, and are, and that's why those crabs are so prized, you know. So, I mean, well, what I don't know if that's what people are using as their context. What I think I've made the mistake of in the past is when I'm getting them, mm-hmm. um, I will try and freeze them. Oh yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, that's how you get a dirty crab taste. Yeah, I mean, crab uh, just doesn't. Crab if you cook it well. first, I think it freezes better. Yes, yes. I've had good experience that way. But if you don't cook it fresh, it is, it turns it turns multiple levels of foul. And it's very dangerous. Like what? Crab crab in itself is extremely it's an endanger, it's a dangerous ingredient to play with. Why? It goes bad very quick. Um, crabs hold on to toxins, unlike other crustaceans and shellfish in the in the ocean, um, to the point where they can build up enough where they won't die, but they can poison you with with the buildup in them. This happened a few years ago with the Dungeness crabs. So is this this is like um, remember um, with the red tides and things it's like, like that? 2016, 2017, uh, Dungeness crabs were almost completely unavailable for six to eight months in California because an algae had yeah. had um. Had, had bloomed and the cra- and it went into the crabs not and didn't affect the crabs at all right but made them poisonous so yeah the this can that same thing can happen with bait fish and then what happens is you get it so that it gets um, biomagnification mm. in the sea lions and the sea lions will get poisoned oh wow and they'll literally go crazy and so there's 
there's not a lot of instances of this, but there's a couple where sea lions have actually kind of gone mad. Like rabid. And, and rabid, yeah, and they've attacked people. <laughs> wow. To the point where like they've like physically attacked surfers and things like that. And so just recently when we had that massive uh, red tide, mm -hmm. uh, where that same, you know, that's the kind of thing, that algae bloom, um, I went out surfing and there was, a, there was a sea lion in the lineup and I just like, <laughs> pulled all my limbs in. I was like, let's just wait for this guy to go. Maybe he's a little loopy on the algae. Dirty little algae drink this guy's having. They're, they can be scary close up. Time they got move. some teeth on them, man. And have you seen that video of that? Uh, there's a seal in the harbor, and these this family is like teasing him, kind of, and they want to get him up so that they can take a picture in front of their daughter, and their daughter sits down on the edge of the thing, and the sea lion's just like, nope, and reaches up and grabs the daughter and pulls her into the ocean. Wow. Oh, and everybody's freaking out and screaming, and like, I mean, and the, yeah, you don't, an I mean... adult bull sea lion, that is not a small animal. They're like seven feet long, they weigh several hundred pounds, yeah. like, they got some weight to them, man. If they wanted to mess you up, they would definitely mess you up. I remember when I was down in that La Paz dive, and they took us out to the sea lion colony there. Um, I was swimming with like the females who were yeah. like, who were you know, they're curious. They're like going like and maybe going the under pups my, going yeah, and the pups. They the were going youngs, under my. Yeah. They're like going under my tank and like nipping at me and stuff. But um, the entire time there was a huge like the male with the big bump on his head yep. was circling and like barking in the water the entire time. And he was just letting his presence known and, you know, wouldn't get close to me and would probably not. I mean, I wouldn't want to try to get close to it. It was definitely like showing off its might. Um, and yeah, they're not something I'd want to. I saw actually one of my first dives in Catalina. I was out there with uh, some people, you know, that we used to die, like PW people and stuff like that. And they were lobster diving. I was on the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was probably at, like, I don't know, like 50 feet or something. But they were down, you know, it goes down to, like, 100, 110. They were down. They went into a cave and then came out real quick. And a sea lion followed them and knocked one of their tanks. Uh, he was, like, circling them and knocked them. And the, one of their tanks was, like, floating. I'm, like, watching this, like, 50 feet above them. And they're, like, tank. is it's, like, super clear visibility, obviously. But, yeah, I was, like, you know? this sounds like a good day in Catalina. It, it if you can see 50 feet below you. And I didn't have, like, much of context. And, you know. You were just, like, like what's going like, on? Yeah, it was very early in, like, diving and stuff. So I was just, like, sitting there, like, watching this, like, sea lion, like, buzzing them. The guy's trying to put the tank back, like, connect the guy's tank back. And I was, like, holy oh, shit. And I was talking to them about it later. And they're, like, yeah, sometimes, you know, we went in the wrong cave. Sometimes they get territorial and well. So I've heard stories of people going out to the northern Channel Islands, and uh, up there they have, I mean, they have one or two caves where the dive boats can actually kind of back into and oh. very big. But there's a lot, and there's even ones that the sea lions have known that inside they can sit and relax, and they'll be it'll be completely dark or there's a light hole, and they'll hang out in there. But during high tide, it's closed off. Hmm. And so a story where divers have gone exploring and they pop up out of the water and there's this like 700 pound bull sea lion looking at them like, ooh, 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 ooh. and they're just like, okay, wrong direction. Let's turn around. Cause you know, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to tangle in one in the sunlight, let alone in a dark cave yeah. by myself. It's like, oh, <laughs> There's there's few critters in the ocean. I mean, I mess with a tuna crab, but that, <laughs> but like some of the there's some big things out there, man. Yeah, this I think the best. 
time I've seen like sea lions in real life was during the squid runs when they're when they're flying through like the squid with their mouth open and their eyes are glowing and there's like rolling in the eggs on the bottom on the, on the ocean floor and you're just like what the fuck is going on that is the best time to see a predator right when they're eating whatever they want to eat because yeah. they're happy and full and not looking at you like you could be a meal yeah yeah i just remember them coming out of the darkness the mouth wide open like eyes i was just like oh my god yeah uh julian gunther you knew Julian, yeah. right? Yeah. So he has a great photo of one actually snatching one of the squid oh. right out of the like midwater. And so they'll bite him, and then they'll open their mouth and bite him again and chomp him. And he got him like in between bite one and two. Oh, wow. Great photo. Nice. Um, that is one of the most unique dives in California, the squid run. Yeah. So being able to be uh, in a place where you can go down and be completely surrounded by a hundred thousand squid like at least a hundred thousand squid yeah and just everything comes in for it seals come in you can hear the dolphins in the water <laughs> at night which is cool and it is just a trippy trippy experience that if when you're in the middle of it of a good squid run you don't know which way is up you don't know which way is down all you see is squid and it is just this weird mass migration of animals happens Every nine months in California. Yeah. But it's weird. We only see it um, on our local dive site, like usually December, December, yeah. January, sometimes November, October. Once I've seen it happen twice a year. Yeah. This year, none. Yeah. I don't know if it has to do with temperature or what. Oh, so yeah, supposedly uh, it's all temperature related and it never got cold enough. Oh. I think it's cold enough now. Yeah. Um, it's been 57, 55. It is cold. Redondo's, huh? Redondo's cold. That's part of the reason I didn't want to have Redondo that yeah. day. It's, it's chilly. It just gets so cold so quick. So chilly. But yeah. I've so, been swimming a lot, so I think my core temp is... Is a little uh, lower? Yeah. Yeah, I've never gotten... Like, I've never had a problem with the cold before. Well, the water sucks it out of you, man. Yeah, just... But recently, like, I've been, like, almost not... You know, not wanting to go through the entire dive just because, like, because of the cold, and that's never been the case, even at night. Yeah. So I think, like, it's me swimming too much. So, what do you think? Um, what do you think has changed since uh, you started diving and thinking about the food that comes from the sea? Like, does it get you a little bit more excited thinking about where stuff comes from? No, I mean, I, I always, I always knew, and yeah. I always had, and I always. Like and I was always excited about it. Yeah, you know, like where it so came that from part didn't naturally. Change. Yeah, so it really does. If anything, it just reinforces it and makes me f- it make does make me feel more connected to it. And I would say it, I've always had respect for all living animals and stuff. And I, you know, I don't believe in like hurting animals or torturing them. I think everything feels pain and and. And, sh- and shouldn't, you know, as much as possible. Listen, plants hurt a lot. <laughs> but, That's why I only eat animals. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, so I've always had that, like, respect for nature. But if anything, it's just enforced it, reinforced it more. So you're getting more into spearfishing. Yeah. I speared my first fish that last dive on, at Malaga. So... Is that something that you want to get to the point where you're getting bigger and bigger? I mean, obviously, what where do you want to take that? Well, I you know, try not to look too far ahead so that I don't move faster than 
than I than I can now. Then would then be responsible. Yeah, it would be responsible. responsible. Yeah. Um, right now, I'd like to get something that could handle something that I would consider to be out of my skill set and an element. Um, but I'll probably stick to you know one to two when I when I describe fish, I'll describe them in how many people they can serve. A lot of times, so I'll, I would say like the one I speared the other day, that'd be like a two person fish. So I'm gonna like keep myself probably, and that's more because of like the level of skill that I dive at, especially free diving. Like I'm not diving any low any deeper than thirty feet because I just can't safely hold my breath and and get something accomplished and get back up. <laughs> at, a yeah. de- at a deeper, no. deeper thing. Um, spe- and as far as scuba goes, I don't think you know. I I just speared my first fish, and I was a little like stunned from the experience. So imagine you, me. Imagine it's me. amazing how much you can learn in just a brief. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. In like ten seconds of dealing, with it, I was like, oh, I did this all wrong. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, and I'm continually, <laughs> continue. Like, I lost my buddy. Yeah. Like, all these things. <laughs> like, yeah. All these things happen, but like. There were like red flags, you know, but, but, um, task would, loading is a real thing. I would love to eventually get comfortable enough to, you know, hit a, you know, get something like a big yellow tail or, you know, I've seen people get tuna. I don't know how, but, you know, but, but I, I that, that's like when you are working with a team of people, oh, if you're okay. going after a big fish, I mean, you can get a small bluefin or, uh, around here. Um, but if you're going like, somewhere where there's a big yellow fin or big blue i mean people don't really get big blue fin anymore but i'd probably stick to like the 10 pound range max right now like even with like a spear like right now i don't even have a spear gun like i I use the the sling the sling can work for a lot of things Uh, you get you get a big halibut with one of those guys yeah, and I, I mean, I was really surprised at the ease of, of which it, it did work this time. Like, you know, I'd practiced with it a couple other times, and I was a little clumsy, and like, I, bounced it off, I bounced it off of a big sheep head. <laughs> I just didn't, I just didn't We're not going to talk about that. I just didn't have Don't He was that. fine. <laughs> I hope. Okay, he looked back at you like, hey. Yeah. But I just didn't, you know, I didn't have it at the right angle or, or pulled back as tight. But then this one, I didn't. I kind of just, like, relaxed and let go. I was like, uh, oh, you know, like, and did it. And I was like, whoa. Like, oh, that that works. <laughs> and, and then I was like, I have no way to dispatch this thing or you know, or Oops. Or like I did not think this where, through. Yeah, where's my buddy? How yeah. am I gonna get out of the water with this? You know, like there were all these like things I didn't have my bag. You know, so there were all these things that were just like, Oh, I was completely unprepared for this. Well, it's one of those things where you do better when you your expectations are lower, right? You went in with like, oh, it's not going to work. I'll just try it. And then it worked. And you were like, oh, I didn't expect this to work. And I didn't prepare for it to work. Yeah. And now you have that experience to the point where you're going to go in next time with a little bit of both of those. Yeah. And hopefully get a much better result. I know, like, if I go in with the spear, I kind of what mindset to be at, what to bring with me now, you know, because it's what has yeah. getting the knife this morning. And that's that's why it's a little bit better if you're going with people who are spearing in that sense or like yeah. in that mindset. I, I would mean, s- you're always mucking around with this fool with the camera. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but we've hunted and stuff before, and it, and adapt, and I, I'd say you know I have probably a hundred or maybe you know somewhere around a hundred dives I've done. I'd say good majority of them have been hunting dives um 
good majority of them have been, have been hunting dives. A good and so when you say hunting, we're talking lobster. Yeah, lobster yeah, that's gathering. That's the primary. Yeah, lobster gathering Scallops. shrimp. Or, or just or even like the intention of going. Yeah, scallop. Mm-hmm. Or just the intention of going in to get something. Which, by the way, was one of my core and original intentions of getting into scuba diving, too. You know, I was like, oh, yeah. you know, the perk of this is like you're... You can see the fish when you're fishing. Yeah, you know, you know exactly and, yeah. where you source this. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was just something. It's not that, coming through Cisco. It was definitely something that I had always wanted to get into, and I just never put put it all together until then. But um, so you were but, saying <laughs> one of the core reasons why you got into it was that was so that, you could see um, it. Yeah, and now you think. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> did right. you lose your thought? I did. Um. It's, yeah, I mean, just to go back, it's something I want to, I, I do want to keep doing, I do want to get better at. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, there's, listen, th- one of the great things about going out is having a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many things oftentimes that people do that just don't have a clear task yeah. of achievement, right? And, like, even in a lot of people's jobs, uh, even a lot of people's reward mechanisms like social media and stuff like mm-hmm. there's not a real like accomplishment but you go out and you get a fish and then you <laughs> take it home and eat it like it's that's this primal yeah there's something primal yeah. about that that is like oh this kind of like beckons back to a time in which you know man evolved mm-hmm. to do that and i know that sounds very uh I don't know, like uh, romanticized, well, no, but it, it I, I does loved, trigger a lot that. of those. I mean, I wouldn't, I and I could embellish on that even more and romanticize it even more because that's the type of person I am. <laughs> but it's good though, and but, it's great, yeah. like I going mean, it's, out, it's connecting yourself with, you know, with the planet and the earth and and living things and. But it also like a human tradition, right? There's a human tradition that I think in the modern experience we're very detached to. The ability to go out and get your food. Even understanding where the food comes from and what what way it it lives and and exists before it becomes food. All those things are very important, I think, to – if you're going to eat something, you should know what it is that you're eating, where it comes from, and – you know, it's impact on it's impact on you and it's impact on the planet. So I've heard people say things like, Well, why would you go hunting? Just go to the grocery store. Yes. <laughs> and you're like there's a million reasons that you could And I just like you don't you don't know. Yeah. Like and you I mean, just don't you don't know it's it, the it's a product. Can, yeah. And the it's not an animal can... to you at that point. Yes. It's very it's very dehumanizing to the animal to not take responsibility for taking that animal's life. And those, yeah, and those will be the same people a lot of the times that'll say, like, you know, I don't eat anything with a bone in it, you know, or, you know, I'll eat a steak, but not if there's a bone, or, you know, I don't want to see, you know, can you cut that, can you take the head off that shrimp because I don't want to see where, you know, what it was or where it came from. It's like, well, then why are you eating it? You know, this is what it, this is what it is, and you're actually throwing away the best part. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) usually. Gotta eat the brains. Gotta eat the brains. and, And that, and that approach to eating and that demand for the best cut and the most trimmed thing is the problem with with every with agriculture with our view of food with i mean i think it extends all the way to people having allergies and being intolerant of foods that 50 years ago people weren't i mean that's 
it's hard to say that for fact though like i guess it's it's so complicated because we don't even understand digestion no like a yeah. lot of stuff a lot but, of stuff but, but uh, you, like but you can look at the difference you can look at the difference of things like progressing in terms of like aller in terms of allergies and food tolerance and that and you can kind of mirror them with the industrialization of food the use of pesticides, the use of genetics, the use, you know, you, you add all those yes. things up and you're like, oh, maybe people aren't, maybe people aren't gluten-free because people have been living off bread. It's been the staple of life around the world in some form for six to 10,000 years, like, respectively, you know? For us in the last 25, 30 years to decide, you know, to come up with this idea that we're all gluten intolerant, maybe we're not, maybe, but, but that doesn't say that people aren't experiencing something negative from eating um, Maybe we're not allergic to or allergic to bread. We're just allergic to this bread. We're allergic the to bread that allergic, modern bread. We're allergic of how to we're making it. We're allergic to what's being put into the crop to make it, you know, grow better. To make it withstand the the climate change that this type of farming is contributing to. <laughs> you know, like right. this is how like like ridiculous it can be. Yeah. But but I think what people people are allergic to poison. I think, and that's what I think we're experiencing right now. Well, I think, I think that's possible. I think I think there's a lot of correlation with that. Mm -hmm. But like with anything, like correlation doesn't equal causation, and we don't know. Like I think it's probably reevaluating how we get our food and what's going on with our food is probably one of the biggest challenges of the next century. It doesn't have to be though. It, well, it only I mean, is because of the controls. I mean, that are, cha so that are put challenges, in place. challenges. I I don't think I'm making myself challenges in the sense that we need to have better awareness of what we're actually doing and what the impacts of that are, the, so that we can make better decisions. But to do to do that, you have to take profit out of it, and you have to not have profit be the driving force of the agricultural system. But I think it, you see that by people who have money. Like I think the people who have money would rather pay for organic. Yeah, but that's not that's not a sustainable way to do it. Because Well, maybe maybe or, not. Orga organic That's where the organic, ingenuity of people come from, right? Organic and all natural should be A it should be the standard, B it should be the most accessible to everybody. It's not, which means there's a flaw in the system because if you can't afford to be organic, then you have to eat, you know, poison. And, and this is my well, this, this is my opinion. perception, opinion, and yeah. view of it. Ba but a lot I mean, of this is based but, on. But saying it's poison is slight hyperbole. I would say it's definitely. I think you could definitely make an argument that there's less healthy food and more healthy food, and that less healthy food tends to be cheaper. Well, how about have you? Have I you mean, I, just saying it's poison. I think you run the the risk of maybe mischaracterizing or Let's, allowing other people to mischaracterize information we, that we are not necessarily presenting in this moment, but maybe <laughs> kind of had an instinct about. You know what I'm saying? Well, I would say this. Would you drink Roundup? Sure. <laughs> would you drink a shot of Roundup? Yeah. I mean, if, if you put enough tequila in it, like I would definitely... No, yes. So Roundup is an issue, and there's all kinds of studies. Or, I mean, would you? Uh, there's a bunch of herbicides that demonstrate that they're cancer causing, and there's people who yes. are getting cancer related to it, like groundskeepers so my... on thing on uh, things like that. Yeah. So I... my question is, is if you wouldn't ingest or consume these these products as as is, why would you use them on your food? Well, so 
where is the where where is the studying and the and and the factual evidence that they've put you know any effort into providing letting us know that these don't affect so that's us in any that's way. what I want that's what I'm saying I'm saying yeah. that's the challenge is we and, need to actually get that information but we can't when the because driving, here's, when the let driving... me give you let me give you a good example and if I'm wrong about this I'm sure somebody will let me know <laughs> but one of the big things that was like maybe five years ago everybody was like p PBCs, PBCs in my plastic, PBCs in my plastic. They're going to get into me. Then. And PBCs, PBCs, what is it? PPAs. I see, I thought it was PBCs, but maybe it's PBAs. Could be PBCs too. I, I'm not familiar with everything that's out there. That's... I'm not either. So if I'm getting this wrong, I apologize. But one of the things is I, I get Nalgene bottles. I love them. They're great. And they're like, no PBCs in our plastic. Well, it just became a trend by people to say if there's PBCs in plastic, they get leached into the water. And you were drinking this poison if you drank out of plastic bottles. So Nalgene's were great because everybody was like, no PVCs. But CDC did multiple studies where they demonstrated that if you actually drink PVCs, the human digestive system will actually just not absorb it. It doesn't get absorbed into your system. So people were consuming PVCs and it was not showing up in their blood system and there was no negative effects. But it could be getting deposited somewhere else where they're not looking. Like aluminum deposits in the brain and they believe the those deposits of aluminum well, is what, is there what you adds go. to Parkinson's. But it took them forever to figure out, and Alzheimer's, um, and it took them forever to find where those deposits were going. They were like, oh, we know aluminum's corrosive, and it's pretty much illegal in every other country to cook in except for here because it's reactionary to acids and, and other elements. Um, so what, do, should... what, do they have in a, what do they have aluminum in a kitchen? Yeah. It's, no, it's no, I'm asking. Question. Why? No, no, no. what? Like, what do they use cooking? it for? Pans, pots. Really? There's yeah, a little every every restaurant, every restaurant and kitchen that you get your anything that's probably not fine dining or ele or um casual fine dining. Uh huh. The kitchen's probably equipped with uh, alum aluminum everything cookware, which leaches into you know. If, so why? Which leaches into. Why your food. are they using aluminum? I thought everything would use stainless steel because it's durable. No, it's cheap, and the FDA refuses to make it illegal because of industry. You know, this goes into like, you know, who's who's lining whose pockets at the end of the day. But in most countries, um, in most countries, aluminum is illegal to cook in. It's just it's it's it's, it's a common sense thing. Yeah, you just yeah. don't cook in aluminum. You know, and like France, you'd never find an aluminum pot. And most, I mean, in even third world countries, they wouldn't think of cooking with aluminum. Listen, so when we're done goes, here, can we check my pots for aluminum? Absolutely, <laughs> but but this goes back to. But I mean, a lot of people go out and they're like, "Oh, do I want to spend a hundred dollars on a pot, or do I want to spend thirty dollars on the same size pot?" And they'll they'll be like, "Oh, thirty dollars makes sense. It's it's a pot. It works. It boils water. It's aluminum." Well, that that speaks to a a modern another modern thing, which is. So this goes back to, but I mean, that right there goes to my thing of, you know, I would say that the allowing of and the using of aluminum is poison. And long-term use of it is, is you're poisoning, your, you know, you're poisoning yourself. The same as if, like, you put Roundup in, in the crops, you're poisoning people. Well, so, we don't know that. <laughs> I, I, I understand the yeah. concern and... Why, why, ri why risk it if it's not something that you would consume why risk it and why feed ch I, children it i agree i just don't want to get sued um oh most okay. <laughs> most santo has <laughs> deep deep pockets and i do not i like you just well, you don't could. you just don't know though like you, you 
like I, I use feel, that as an example, but I mean, I could use a chemical, you know. Like yeah, well, chemical. there's lots of things. Like, yeah. uh, if you've ever had anything that's uh, metallically plated, yeah, those metallic, the businesses that do plating of uh, metals basically turn wherever their businesses into uh, toxic cesspools. Yeah. It's it's and well, we the problem is is a lot of those and this is a thing for the ocean is a lot of those are near waterways, mm-hmm. and so what happens is when it rains all the chemicals get washed into the waterways, then those wetlands that are there get poisoned and, and it's very problematic. And you know the thing is, people know this. The engineers know this. The governments know this, and they allow it to happen for profit and because they know that by the time the res- the effects of it are starting to be felt or they gamble that by the time this. They'll be long gone, so they don't care. That's the attitude that's a problem. That's pretty much driving. That's a problem. This country in every in, in every of the industries. But I think I think there is a a, a groundswell, things like Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. and I think uh, you know different organizations have attempted to bring awareness. And I was I was about to say earlier, this is this is a modern issue where. The consumer is allowed to make the choice, and it's assumed that the consumer will make a good choice. And to be honest, consumers a lot of times do make good choices. The problem is is consumers don't always have the time, energy, and resources to have all the information to make a good choice. And and so now it's it's a problem. And we've seen you know crazy things happen, like you know shrimp that are injected with fluids to increase their weight, and then in other countries, and then sold in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that's, that are cheaper. And that's we use those shrimp where I work, and I'm completely against. Don't it. say where you work. <laughs> no, that's true. And I mean, I haven't said you know. Yeah, don't. Where I'm from. <laughs> no, no, but, but I like. But this is something that I think needs to be understood, and people need to hear because I'm sitting here preaching. You know, the you you know you should. Organic should be accessible and sustainable food and all that. You know, I'm, I'm going to sit there and sound that trumpet all day because it's what I believe in. It's how I would like to see the world. For me to get the salary that I get and for me to maintain the position that I have and the lifestyle that I have and the profession that I have right now, I have to make, you know, the place I work at doesn't want the price, doesn't want to pay the extra 3 to $7 per pound that it would take to get wild-caught gulf shrimp. So we get... You know, seven. We pay seven fifty a pound for Indonesian farmed, injected, you know, unsustainably farmed mangrove killing, you know, shrimp. <laughs> it's brutal. And so that's yeah. the thing that people and, don't know. And like, I and it and it drives me crazy. Like I don't like it. And if it was my restaurant, my business, I would not use that product because I consider it to be something in like a poison. Poison. You know, I I would I feel bad serving it to people because I don't eat it. Well, it's crazy, too, because I don't think people realize how much seafood is actually farmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've purchased Atlantic salmon, oh yeah, that is not caught in the ocean. That is no. all farmed salmon it's now. the worst kind of, of salmon farming. Well, I thought I listened to an entire interview with a gentleman who's talking about salmon in general, but specific salmon farming, mm-hmm. and I could be wrong about this, but... I have heard that there are certain salmon fisheries that are doing better. There are. I can and name them for you and tell you all about how, how they're different than the – but they're, none of them are Atlantic salmon fisheries. So I was under the impression that there are some Atlantic salmon fisheries in the Pacific that are doing it the right way. They're not – I don't believe they're 
doing if they're doing Atlantic salmon, I'd be surprised. Well, I if thought they're that, using that species. I'd be I surprised. thought the idea was that they would do it with Atlantic salmon, and people were freaked out because they would break out of the pens, but they would never breed again. So it was more of like a well, you're, you'd be introducing like a Atlantic species to a. To a I don't but know they don't why, sur- but they I, don't survive. I don't know if that's true. I don't know why anyone would 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 do that. And again, this sounds like something that you know. They're they're screwing up over there, and they're with their because they're using bad farming methods and the cheapest methods possible. So they're trying to find a way to probably maybe circumvent their cheap methods by moving, moving it to a different location, Area. thinking that's going to help. But that's not what's going to help. It's the entire it's the change of the entire method, which is going to bring their production down, which is going to bring their profit down, and that's why they don't want to do that. So, what would be an example of somebody who you know of who does good sustainable uh, seafood farming? Um, the, all the salmon that's farmed out of the Faroe Islands in Scotland. Yeah, uh, it's king salmon. Uh-huh. And this is an example of a northwestern salmon being farmed in the Atlantic Ocean, right? Um, but what they do, and this is very similar to how they do ora king out of New Zealand, which is probably the best farmed salmon you can get on the market. Okay. Right now, um, what they do is they, they recreate their natural habitat um, in a way, so much so in a way that the fish never even realizes that it's in captivity. So they find a river um, that they can kind of buy or lease the land from the government and, you know, set it up. And these are all, a lot of the time, these are in conjunction with the government um, because they're very sustainable. So they pick a river that salmon would naturally live in and spawn in and then go down to the, and they pen off the ocean to a point that's so far out, like my, a couple miles out in a huge, you know, in a huge diet, like perimeter, um, that the fish just live out their entire life how they normally would. In a giant pen? Well, no, it's, it's just close. It's a close. It's imagine. No, 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 but I'm just like. Imagine a river. Fl- but flung. isn't everything else penned in too? When I when I say pen no when I say like Atlantic when I'm talking about Atlantic farming pen farming no no, no but I mean like you're saying there's a a net no I'm saying okay let me big scale perspective perspective yeah the mountain with the river coming down it right okay, there's your river coming down your mountain right this is great radio because <laughs> <laughs> now we need the camera he is now. <laughs> So we got He's a, now manipulating so we got a mountain some here. sort of handkerchief with so, a wire. So look, we got a mountain, right? And that's usually springs and rivers start up in the mountains, right? Correct. So they buy all or lease or make an agreement for all this land. And let's say here's the ocean and that's the ocean out there, right? So well, the river comes down here. They have all this. They're, you know, This is all just natural. And the river runs to the ocean, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. in case you can't see this. Runs down here, and then you have, this goes out, and then you have, let's say, open ocean. Right. And then, you know, and from you... maybe like miles down the coast here to miles up the coast there, runs out a pin where the, the salmon would, they don't need to go that far. Right, but what I'm saying is, aren't you also netting in everything else and netting out everything else? It's such a well, it's such a large amount that anything maybe stuck in there just just continues that ecosystem. It doesn't. At the end of the day, these salmon. It's an interest. I'm I'm gonna have to go research this. At the, at the end of the day, these salmon come out as as natural as possible. They're beautiful fish. There's no signs of like. The signs that you get when you get no antibiotics and all that stuff. No antibiotics, no artificial coloring, which is what they do to the 
to the Atlantic salmon as well. Um, they say it's not artificial because they use beta carotene and stuff, but you, they give you a color chart and you pick what color you, you want your salmon. You know, it's not really natural. And it's pellet, <laughs> and it's usually pellet food, and a right. lot of that pellet food is salmon byproduct or other salmon and stuff. So you're, you're really not, you know, you're playing God in a really bad way. You know, and then they, they cram them for profit purposes. They cram as many fish into a circular pen with hard walls yeah. as much as possible. So these fish live a very stressful life. They have no time alone. They have no means of, like, doing what they would do naturally. And they get knocked into these pens. So when you get them, like, some are missing eyes. Sometimes, like, the beaks of them are all, like, messed up they have a like a like a flipper messed up or like or like a flipper that never even grew because of like yeah there's no room you know and it's really sad i don't know if you've ever been to like in like really like cheap like chinese or like japanese like food stores japanese wouldn't do it but like chinese food stores where they have the tanks of fish yeah and they're like, i've seen those and, like all, and they're all like just like in the corner trying to breathe the oxygen bubbles that are coming out of the filter yeah it's that kind of deal yeah, yeah it's like it's disgusting you know i mean it's rough it's that's not <laughs> It doesn't make you think, wow, that's a healthy animal. Yeah. So that's the difference, really, between Atlantic salmon and farming and... Well, one of the, the, one of the stark thing. differences, I, when I was a kid, I used to love going to aquariums. Like, SeaWorld was my jam. Like, it was, <laughs> like, my favorite. Yeah. I mean, you know, this was way, way pre-Blackfish and when I f- yeah, figured yeah. out that it's... Oh, no, I used to go to SeaWorld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before I realized <laughs> it was just a concentration camp. Um, that is going to get cut out because I'm, that <laughs> is hyperbole. Um, most of the animals are very happy at SeaWorld. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so I used to love going, um, but now I'll go to aquariums and stuff, and you can see the difference between a natural wild animal and one that's in an aquarium. Like usually they're a lot older, Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the animals in an aquarium are just older, so it feels like a convalescent home. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, and that's good because that means they're not dying, right? But yeah. you see usually young animals that are active and doing stuff and like this and that. And like the the fish in an aquarium oftentimes just look bored. Yeah. They just look bored. Like, uh, what time is feeding time? Yeah. And it's it's a weird thing. I don't know. I, I, I haven't looked at it enough to really be able to describe it well, but once you start seeing them in the wild, yeah. you notice a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably act the same way. I mean, if you were to look at prisoners versus you know, people out in the wild, you'd probably get very a lot of the same. It's a dark topic these days. But, you know, all things life, life-wise are connected. They're all going to behave. You know, you take something out of its natural, um, you know, what's the word? Habitat. Surrounding habitat. Yeah, yeah experience. Yeah, it's going to, you know, it's going to However you want to put it. It's going to react to it, and it's probably going to react negatively to it. And, you know, especially if it's something that can't evolve through that, you know? Well, I mean, but time. evolving takes so long. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I mean, like, mentally evolving through it, you know? Yeah. Um, or at least accepting it. So, I want to I wanna ask you, what would you say um, was your best experience since you've been... An active ocean goer. Like, best experience, highlight reel, what would you say is, like, something that spoke to you? It doesn't have to be impressive to anybody else, necessarily. So don't feel like you have to impress people, but... I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I learned... There's very few dives I've ever been on that I've not learned something either about myself or about, you know, the art of diving or about my equipment. 
So even on like bring a knife. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or ha- yeah, having the proper tools, you know, yeah, a yeah. huge mantra we talk about in the kitchen all the time: have the, have the right tr- tools for the job, you know. And had a, I was out there with a spear gun and a, and a spoon, you know. <laughs> so uh, you know, oh, bad should have gone with a spork. <laughs> bad example of uh, you know, following my own mantras, but um, yeah, I mean, even even in the worst conditions and some of the worst or what people would say would be the most wor- you know, worst or uncomfortable dives, I found something very positive out of them. So um, my favorite or best dives would be like the lobster dives tend to be really fun because it takes a lot of, takes a lot of skill and awareness, you know, and it's also just exhilarating. Yeah, it is. And you're usually in kind of like a semi-dangerous setting you know <laughs> right it does always feel like you're doing like a mission impossible yeah it's usually at night and if you like that redondo breakwaters break wall breakwater wall is can get gnarly. sketchy yeah, yeah it can so, be sketchy so you know those are times that i've that i've felt panic and i've been happy that i've calmed myself down enough to go through them not jump to the surface and you know abandon the dive you know i've got my head together and figured it out and looked at my compass and, you know <laughs> there's something about lobster diving where you know until you get that one yeah. there's this tension of like oh man and, and fishermen talk about this too it's like once you get that first fish you're like at least i'm not going home skunked yeah <laughs> you know it's like at least i got one and it's like when you're going like late in the season and they're all shorts and you just keep seeing bug after bug after bug <laughs> bug is code for lobster um you you just get to the point where it's just like oh come on and then you <laughs> get that one that you're like okay and then you kind of like relax a little bit and you get into your groove and then you're you just get real focused it's it's a fun experience man it is i have to say the overall most mind-blowing dive so far for me it was the oil rigs though yeah, just because of the size and well, it's it's a giant underwater and, playground. Yeah, it's just it's, and you it's get the nothing. visibility here in California where you don't always have good visibility, and you can see this giant structure around you, and you're also doing cool stuff like yeah. getting scallops. scallops yeah, yeah. And like seeing. I mean, a lot of, I saw a lot of different fish. You know, there was when I'd come up to the surface, like inside the, you know, in, inside the um. The oil superstructure. Yeah, inside the structure, you know, there'd be sea lions like laying down and fire shooting out of pipes. And I was like, this is like awesome. This is right out of like Armageddon. If you yeah. could create, yeah, if you could create a wild dive environment, that's what you would create. You're like, yeah. why is there just fire spitting out? Am I at like a Metallica yeah. show? What's happening? Like, Can I jump up on this platform and yeah. get my gun out and start splinter cell? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the whole thing is like, yeah, you could be in like a video game, but it was just like the whole experience was just really like. Well, you also got the live boat drop, so you yep. you're jumping off a boat that's not anchored. It yep. feels a little bit more. Oh, I love boat dives because most of my dives are shore dives, and dealing with sand is. <laughs> sand can. Oh, yeah. you prefer rocks. <laughs> hey, I'm glad that I'm more proficient in shore diving. I mean, it's a skill that I've, I've met a lot of divers that. Are like dive masters and you know instructors from like other places like Thailand and stuff like that, and they they're like I never shorted like they don't know how to you know they have a hard time with it. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but I feel like completely. I'm like oh, it's five foot wave, no problem. You know. <laughs> like, I mean, there is there is a confidence that comes with 
knowing how to handle yourself in waves with you know 40 pounds of gear on your back yeah and rocky entries and yeah <laughs> and and having an experience where things don't go right also boosts your confidence because yeah. you're like if you've never if you've never been rolled or if you never had that bad experience mm -hmm. you don't you always have that fear of it once you've gone through it once and made it out yeah it's it's better. It's better. You're just like, I, I know what not to do, and I know what it feels like if I don't not do it right. So, yeah. And you can help other people too. Like, yes, definitely. From that point on. Well, l listen, you know, as experienced as I am, you saved my gloves last dive. <laughs> so I was dumb. I didn't put them on before I went in. Big waves. That's making up for not turning your tank on. Right? Yeah. Well, there was enough air to get through the dive. It was all right. And then you're like, and I was like thinking about it a lot after. I was like, shit. And then, uh, and then I was like, you're like, right, hey, lefty Lucy. And because it's like forward back, like my, my mind just doesn't think, like, it, this thing's differently. Sometimes. Well, so I'm also, always like, I think what I did that I was just like, oh, I'm just, you know, whichever way it. Well, I'm glad you really turned thinking. it a halfway back. Otherwise, I, I would have had no air. <laughs> you would have realized really quick. Yeah. <laughs> As I was sinking I was down to the bottom with you. no air. Yeah. I would have been super stoked. <laughs> well, don't you always like, Test your regulator before you I, go down. You know, I usually do. And the thing is, is because it was cracked, I took a uh, breath off of it. But oh. if you're not looking at your gauge, so if you're diving and it's cracked open but not totally, it'll let it'll give you air. Yeah. But your gauge will go down to zero at the end of the breath for each one. Oh, wow. Which if you're watching it happen and you don't know what's it's happening, scary. it's terrifying. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, okay, so no deep, deep breaths because I'm going to go... <laughs> Every time I was like, oh, okay. That's why I'm still learning. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll check my gauge next time. That's all. <laughs> no, that was, I mean, I've, I've since like. I don't know if I made a bad joke and you were a little angry. I don't know what happened. No, that no. I've just since like told myself to be a little more aware when <laughs> doing something like that. Hey, listen. Uh, what was it? I believe it was Dan. Uh, Divers Action Network, yeah. who's involved with all the safety. They, uh, they're an insurance, insurance. in mm -hmm. um, great organization. Um, I, I am a uh, automatic subscribing member. Uh, I, I love Dan. To, I need to get it. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> um, but they're great. They put out a, a thing on uh, diver accidents. Uh, maybe it's probably about seven years ago now, in which they reported. And what basically happened is uh, when they, they looked at like the graph of like how many dives you had and how experienced you were mm -hmm. and who was most likely to have an accident. What it basically was is there was like a very high level of accident immediately after getting certified, <laughs> right? Which you would expect, like least experienced people doing it by themselves, you would have an accident. Yeah. Uh, then it dropped off for a long time and then it pops up again. And it pops up again once people start becoming instructors and dive masters and oh. things like that. Because, I, you know, you're like, well, they're so much more experienced. Why would they do it? They get cocky. Uh, push they the get co well, they push the they push their limits. They get cocky. They think, oh, I'm an instructor. And one of the things that um, you know, certifying agencies are being better about now is is really trying to make sure that people who do get to that level don't take things for granted i'm surprised the dive amounts you need to get to those levels are so low 
that's been an issue. People always, have. I was like, really? All I need is 50 dives? To, and it, it, it varies <laughs> depending on organizations. So even I wouldn't consider myself. Like, I'm far past that, and I'm still like, I probably wouldn't attempt to get into like instructor, dive master for, for like another 100 dives. I don't think I got my advanced until I was at like 80. Yeah. And. I got mine it, around 40 or 50, I think. Yeah, it, it was, I was, I don't even think I was, I think what I was really just like, well, I've been doing this enough. I probably <laughs> should, like, maybe have some evidence. They'll lay on a wreck without one. Yeah, <laughs> that will, so I, in my it. time of diving, I saw that get more strict. Oh, okay. So when I first started diving, um, the oil rigs and stuff, they didn't have restrictions on that type of thing. Oh, wow. And then I think there was... Some close calls. I think there was that one incident where the gentleman did not make it back on the boat, yeah. which we will will leave for people to look up. Uh, he did make it out. Thank you to the Boy Scouts. Great story. Boy <laughs> Scouts rescued a guy who got blown off the oil rigs. Oh wow! Yeah, um, I thought you were talking about the guy who just went down and didn't come back up. So that was like a couple of years ago. Was that? I don't. I don't recall that one at the oil rigs. There was one of those. Oh, that was the rigs. Where the guy went, like, he just, like, left his buddy and just went down. His buddy went after him, but he had, like, they thought it was, like, suicide or something. Oh, really? Because he just went to the bottom of the oil rig. Like, yeah, you got to know your point, like, like, they said, no, this guy was, like, 20 years, like, 20-year diver. Oh, you think he was? Uh, yeah, that's why they think he was, like, like, he was with his buddy and everything, and then he was just, like, looked up at his buddy and went like this and, like, sunk. His buddy, like, went, and he said, like, like a rock, like, like let his weights go. And in, or not let his weights go, but like just like, like that's a rough thing to do to your buddy. Yeah, you <laughs> and know, the guy, like, like went after him. Everyone was talking about it. Oh no, I didn't hear ago. about this. I didn't hear about this one. Uh, my my, the guy who helped get me to be an instructor, uh, I think since now has dove the oil rigs. But his first dive on the oil rigs, he uh, dropped into the water, was fiddling with his GoPro, and. He saw this guy shoot past him, and so he sh he chased him because he was like that guy's going. That guy's at. It looks like he's out of control. He caught like him going down. Going down. Oh wow! Caught him at. I think he said 140 or 150 feet, something like that. And the guy didn't even know he was sinking. Like yeah. the guy was fiddling with like his computer or something, and didn't even realize that he was sinking. And so he took him back up, and like he had like. 200 psi by the time they got back up and they had gone wow. into deco and like it was a big mess and it saved this guy's life because yeah. he was just being an idiot and um it was one of those things where he was like he was done for the day yeah he was like i'm not at all yeah. he, he was just well he had gone into deco his computer wouldn't let him but it was just one of those things where this person had made a mistake and if somebody wasn't there to help yeah. And there's a lot of there's a lot of those stories where being an aware diver or being aware in the water, right? Mm -hmm. Anywhere in the ocean, it's always important to be aware because people can unexpectedly need help, yeah. you know, at you know, any time. You know, not to make the ocean sound like the most terrifying place. I, no, I don't I think mean, it is, but yeah. it's just people interact with it so much, there's always a chance some little mistake happens. Yeah. And so he I mean, has a very bad uh, experience with the oil rigs and all that, but I haven't heard of anybody actually passing away at the oil rigs. To be honest, like when I when I first dove the oil rig, um, 
I was surprised at how far, like, I was just, you know, kind of, like, going down, and I think I, like, checked my gate, and, like, you know, checked and, like, saw, like, how deep I was, and I'd gone to, like, 80 feet without even, without even noticing. I was like, whoa, 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 you know, and I, I was, like, kind of looking around, like, chilling and, like, coming down, and I looked, I was, you know, I was, like, 30, 40, and I'm like, oh, oh scallops, cool, and I was like, whoa, you know, I'm like, I'm pushing 100, and I'm like, oh, shit, you okay. know, like, then I had to, like, Put some air in that out. BCD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it goes fast, it's so clear out there, that's yeah. the problem. If you get there on a the good day, you feel like you could go real deep. Yeah. And not even notice. Yeah, no, I think I got down to about a hundred at one point, but I don't like going that. And I didn't really have any. I, there were people with me, but not like with me. With me, there wasn't like a buddy attached to me, really. Yeah. So you know, I never, if I am, happen to be out alone or split up, I immediately try to get to like forty feet or three thirty feet. Yeah, it's for me. Safe, that's like a a chill, know. safe place where if things something bad goes happens, yep. you feel like you can control the situation. Yeah, right like I would never by myself go to you know probably past like fifty feet. Well, you're always <laughs> supposed to dive with the buddy, Alex. I know. Always supposed to dive with the buddy. <laughs> I know. Be a responsible diver, man. <laughs> um, so beyond this, uh, do you have a favorite seafood? I think I've asked you this question. I'm, I feel like I know where the answer is going to go. I mean, I'd probably like it have to be. I split up everything up into categories. So, favorite seafood overall? Like, I mean, I don't like shellfish or product. I mean, like shellfish. I think like crab. Yeah, crab and like or like there's a certain types of prawns or shrimps that I'm like partial to. Uh, fish wise, I like fatty, usually fatty, oily, more oily fish. So yellowtail, salmon's. Um, I thought before you told me your favorite was uh, Chilean sea bass. No, no, not at all. No, no. It's a really, I mean, it's good. It's it's a sh- it's kind of a chef's and industry favorite because of all the hype. Well, also how it cooks and everything about it. It's kind of like it's got a really good flavor and it's got like the perfect flavor it's a really deep rich almost like scallopy flavor okay but with a really like light beautiful flaky flesh okay you know so you got kind of like a mix between like a cod and a scallop if you can imagine like the lightest fish and one of like the heaviest butteriest things like in one thing and it's not a bass speaking of scallop Mm -hmm. one of these days i don't know if anybody else has this problem Mm-hmm. But I cannot cook a scallop for the life of me. And if you tell me it's easy, like <laughs> so you easy. always do, I hate it. I hate it. I get scallops off the oil rigs, and I cannot cook them. What 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 happens? Like, what's the problem with them? Like, what I makes you always not like them? F- I, I well, most of the time I overcook them. Okay, that's the easy thing to do. Yeah, and when that happens. And then the last time I did it, I, I, I followed a recipe perfectly. And they weren't overcooked, but I got a piss-poor sear on them. Yeah. And I th- that's part of the, of the cooking process. Like you have to process. sear them, right? You don't have to. but Well, you, I mean, but that's I mean, what, ha- like, locks in the flavor and brings out the, like, caramelizes the meat. And- I would say, yeah, extremely high heat application for very little bit of time is the best way to cook scallops. Why do I keep messing it up? So, so you could do that, like when I say. So when I say that, that opens up the possibility to deep frying. That opens up the possibility to grilling. Opens up the possibility of pan, you know, pan searing. So, but with all three of those, you have to have an exceptionally 
very, very hot surf surface, very hot and clean surface to work off. And the drier the scallop is, the better the better your product and your sear is going to come out. So the a big thing with the scallops is um, patting them dry before you season them and sear them mm-hmm. is very important. If you have any bit of moisture out of them, or they're or they're or they've been processed in a way where they've been like salted or pumped with water, which some some are. Um, for purpose, yeah. For uh, that same thing as like that the was a dumb question. Oh, just to make them more plump. Yeah. And sometimes you kind of sterilize them, and then you know different species or different producers or you know of, of scallops. So that's why you know you want to get a better, better type, like a dry pack. You usually want to get a dry pack scallop, um, which means that it hasn't have a, it hasn't sat in a solution or been injected or you know it's it, they're kind of like they call them dry scallops that come in a can. Or get, you know, fresh scallops that you have to shuck open and clean and do all that business yourself. Those are the two best ways to get them. Very expensive. Um, always, like, you know. Yeah, well, if you 25 get 25 and 35 a pound. <laughs> like, easily. Um, which is why you only get, like, two or three scallops when you go out to eat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I always wondered what that was. <laughs> That's why, because they're about $30 a pound. So, but, uh, but you can you can farm scallops, can't you? Yes. I got. I guess I don't know anything about it though. Okay, I should look it up. But I I have heard that they do that. Um, I mean I don't see from seeing how they grow naturally, at least on the oil rigs. I don't they see, grow fast, man. I just don't see how like you'd be able to get them like in the pristine whole shell without farming them or having some type of way to like loosely have them attach themselves to something where you can get them off. Because the way that they're farmed is not the way that we farm them on the. On the um, oil rigs. rigs. Yeah, people don't, you don't go into them and carve them out out of their shell. They, they harvest the whole animal in the shell and then they pretty much, you know, put them on ice, clean them and put them on ice and they relax and sort of, fa- and sort of fall asleep and keep them alive, just like oysters and clams and stuff like that until they get to their destination and they're shucked and processed and cooked. Um, that's interesting. I didn't know that. But, but yeah, to cook a scallop properly, you just want it really, really high heat, really quick. You know, if you're putting them in a soup, you kind of drop, you know, you turn, if the soup's like simmering, you turn the soup off and you drop them in and let them cook just in the residual heat. Just that's exactly what we did with the tuna crab. Yeah. We dropped them in the boiling water and turn the heat off and let them sit for five minutes. And they just, the residual heat cooks them. Because there's there's so little, you know. That is the art form of cooking, which has uh, just... (laughs) It's just the under- Oof, goes it's just right un- through me. It's just understanding the the techniques and applications. Like resting meat, yep. I I don't have the patience for it. I just can't do it. It's the worst. Yeah. I know it's the worst way to keep, cook beef is not let it sit and rest, yeah. but still. Everything you should. It's not even beef. You should let everything rest. Even if you cook a piece of fish, you should let it rest for like three four minutes. It's like a little fillet. Mm-hmm. It just makes the product itself like especially and if you do like a whole animal or let's say cooking like you cook like a whole chicken. You always rest it, and you rest it breast side down, so all the juices fall back into the breast. Oh, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, kind of at an angle like this, with its legs, its legs up, and it's on its breast. Interesting. And all the juice will go back into that breast, like in the and the bigger the piece of meat, and the more whole, and the more bones in it, the longer you rest it. So a whole chicken, you want to rest for 15, 20 minutes. You know, a whole fish, like a whole bronzino that you grill up. You know, and let it rest for a good like six to ten minutes. All the juices will kind of pull back in. The meat will relax. You know, because hmm. what happens when you cook protein? The protein, the heat hits the protein, and the protein seizes up. 
and everything seizes up into the protein and kind of emulsifies there and it goes through this cooking process where all the molecules are moving really fast and everything's changing yeah you know, the, the, the physical and chemical composure inside is changing after you've gotten it to where you want it you let it rest so that everything can kind of come like relax and then come back to the center of the protein relaxes you know it's kind of like if you eat something that's like in rigor mortis state it's going to be tough so yeah. when you kill a cow, you let it hang for like seven days, you know, seven days, and you let all the muscles relax and everything like that, and then you go through the process of butchering, aging, eating. But that's different with with that because it's it's aging meat. So when you age, no, meat, no, that's not aging. That's just that's that's. I mean, you kill a deer, right? You kill you let a, it, you hang, yeah, yeah. But aging meat's something different. Very, yeah. Okay. Yeah, aging meat's for more for flavor. Yeah. And you're trying to reach like certain pro- you, flavor profiles. When you get and those texture. flavor profiles, is the meat actually breaking down? Well, it's breaking down. Like, is it? It's not the dry aging process. Is it decomposing in a dry aging process? It's denaturing, I would say, more than than decomposing. So it, it de- is slowly decomposing. Decomposing but a, implies that there's like bacteria eating stuff yes. and like all of that, right? That What's, is happening, but it's but in a controlled environment. So is it happening slower? Yes. So that it's it's not rotting. Yeah. So it's at 55, usually around like 55 degrees. Yeah. With constant air air airflow. If you took away that 55 degree temperature and took away the airflow, you'd have like a blooming of bacteria and and rotten meat. So constant airflow, like, okay. Like a fan, like pretty much a fan blowing on on it. So you have. And does that just keep it dry? Yeah. Okay. So that's why they call it kind of dry aging. You're hitting the bacteria that's forming with like air, and it sort of stunts it and forces it to sort of go in. Yeah. And that bacteria going in reacts with the meat and kind of breaks down the meat, adds flavor to it, and it just sort of like they they work you're, together. You're eating bacteria poop. Yeah. But, but then it well that's the flavor is then, bacteria poop. <laughs> but then at the end, why dry dry aged meat so expensive is not just the time it takes to reach that is that you have to trim off all the inedible oh. outside area you lose anywhere from 25 to 35 percent of your product through dry oh. it also shrinks so if you start with a 12 pound brisket it'll go down to like eight yeah and then you got to trim then you still off trim another pound mm-hmm. oh yeah. okay so that's why it's forty nine ninety nine a pound. Yeah, that makes I feel like it. I feel especially it feels more justified now. Especially if it's prime or yeah. or if it's like wagyu or grass fed. I mean, you're just you stacking know, up. Now, prices. now you can see why you go out and you're like, oh, you know, a five wagyu beef is you know it's eighty dollars an ounce. <laughs> you <know>? Jesus, <laughs> that's because somebody's you know shopping, elevating a cow and massaging it with sake. You know, on top of all these other processes. You know, that's that's just crazy. So what is the most high-end, in your opinion, the most high-end style seafood? Style? Or like, yeah, like there's nobody massaging, uh, you know, a tuna. Well, I would say... Like maybe... Okay, so like what I was, and when I was explaining earlier, the Aura King salmon. Yeah. Where they pretty much carve out a piece of land that becomes their home that they never know they're... That's probably the best that I would say... Is the, almost better than some of the wild king salmon that I've had out of like Alaska and like and really yeah. It, it, if if anything, it's the closest thing to it that you'll get. And more consistent. Definitely consistent. Would you say and parasite free usually? Oh really? How do they manage that? 
Um, the parasites just aren't accustomed to them in Scotland. Be, I don't know. Uh, it might be the cold. Might be the the cold water. It might be a treatment that they may may put them through at the end. But they don't. They usually don't have any parasites. That's impressive. Might be the food that's available to them. Like, and because it's in a semi-controlled environment, you know, they just they do pick out the place where they're going to do this. They don't just. It's not random. It's all thought out. There has to be a certain type of like ecosystem and bacterial growth and it all has to work in harmony they can't be having the salmon like be an invasive species and wiping shit out in these bays you know so yeah. they, they put all the thought through so that when you get this i i have to bring you the salmon sometime now if you've never had aura king it's I, it's like eating a stick of salmon butter well you know my you, <laughs> it's so fatty and you so know delicious my better half like salmon. doesn't like seafood so it really does cut down on my consumption <laughs> when she's not around i order well, sushi I always, and oh, i'll always bring i'll always bring some land animals for her too okay um, we'll have to well, do we we'll do have to do this yeah i'll always bring i i have to do that for my mom my mom's largely vegetarian so i always have to make kind of a separate meal or or make like a, like have the same set but then have different proteins we'll, we'll or do surf the ladies can do turf yeah well okay mom edith loves seafood she's like she'll eat everything oh okay so yeah she ate that okay. whole crab remember she was the only one that ate the whole crab uh that's true <laughs> i you know i hate to waste a crab but i can't <laughs> get down the with the tamale <laughs> but, tamale um, is too far but i'd say my most decadent seafood like is alaskan king crab that good i've had it before it's good yeah. I mean, I, people I would, die to get it. So. I would say at the end of the day, if you want to deck the best seafood experience you could ever get, is probably go to a real sushi bar and have the best present, the best and simplest presentation of whatever it is that they have is guaranteed. And when I say good seafood, I mean you have to go to a good sushi place. Like there's a ton of mediocre. There's a ton of like passable. There's and I nothing go to them that too. terrifies me more. Than a place that says all you can eat sushi. Yeah, never, never do that. <laughs> Those are words that should never be in the same sentence. It's the word. Yeah. I just go like or discount no. or budget or no. Or I'm not gonna go there. Yeah. My brother was like, I or got this to go. Oh, uh, <laughs> my brother. He was like, I got this great sushi place. We're gonna go and we go and it was an all you can eat. Yeah. It was like, all right, everyone's got that friend. I'm not gonna. It was <laughs> this is family, man. So I didn't have the heart to tell him. I was just like, if you like it, good for you. But I'm gonna I'm gonna suffer through this meal. Yeah. No, I've definitely had to play play happy through some some sushi experiences but, yeah but yeah if you I, I would i would say that if unless you have like well you, some people aren't aren't down with the raw yeah I'd, I'd say maybe go to a chef who specializes in seafood if you want i mean if you want to get a decadent and really like insane representation of what you can do with seafood and like just mind-blowing stuff michael simarusti here in la would be the guy to go through but i mean even like Going to Fish and with Dynamite or, you know, MB Post, like David LeFevre, he does he does really cool stuff with seafood, too, especially at Fish and with Dynamite. And it's very simple. Well, the place in Playa del Rey, um, Playa Provisions, they seem yeah. like they specialize in seafood, too. They seem pretty she good. She does. Yeah, she does a good job. I mean, a lot of chefs do, you know, so, seafood, with seafood, less is more, usually. The less you do, the better the seafood. And I mean, this is with all ingredients, but especially with seafood, you try to get the best product as possible and do the little littlest you can to it but so with people who are harvesting themselves mm -hmm. in the ocean mm -hmm. what would you think is probably the most go-to way to represent that food product the best possible way 
like like scallops oh. or lobster or like what what, what what pops into your head is like an easy way that somebody can get something, bring it home, and enjoy it with the most. I I I think if you like lobster, yeah. I think it's lobster. Oh, I mean, if you can get them, then if you can get lobster, I would. I like personally, out of trying a bunch of different ways of cooking the spiny lobster here, grilling them has been the best for me. Yeah, because um, it gets them a little smoky. Gets them a little smoky. You I mean, there's more a little more of a process to them, but you end up controlling the texture, controlling the flavor, controlling the doneness a lot easier. Um, I take them out of the shell to cook them, so that's. To cook them on the grill. Yes. So how do you how do you? Because I'm always terrified to mess with a barbecue. So you take the with seafood. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why well, that is. Well, most barbecue. If you have a gas, if you like, I have a gas propane grill. Yeah. Don't even bother. Really. Because it's never going to get hot enough, and you're not going to really impart the flavor you're going to want on the in the seafood. Yeah. To do a good job, skin on the fish is going to stick to the grill. The scallop is going to poach on the lukewarm. You know, thing you got to get like charcoal, work your fire, get it really, really hot. Um, if you're gonna grill seafood, in my opinion. Okay. Um, uh, what I do with the lobsters, I blanch them like in salted, salted boiling water. Okay. For about just to get them to separate from the shell for about two minutes. Yeah. They okay. just they don't cook, but they separate. They they pull away from the shell. Then I use scissors. I open up the tail. That's Which, all. By the way, use. I used to do that with knives. <laughs> Before I realized that scissors could <laughs> scissors be used. Are the best, yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> I was an idiot. I'm sitting there like <laughs> cutting through so a just, shell. So I just cut off the uh, thing and I pull the tail out whole. Yeah, and then you know, and it's it's pretty much raw. Do you butterfly it at all? Uh, it depends on how big it is. Okay. So if it's if it's a smaller tail, no. Um, I'll keep it whole. If it's if it is like a, like one of those big guys, you know, yeah. like then then yeah, I'll cut it. I'll maybe even cut the whole tail in half. Like completely separated. Oh, okay. Um, then when it's raw, you put a skewer through it and straighten out the meat. Okay. And marinate it, season it however you want. When you cook it, the meat's gonna stay straight and it's not gonna curl up into that ball. It's gonna help you cook it um, better, and it's gonna you're gonna get more um, like surface char and flavor having the piece of meat stretched out and and straight on on a stick like that. I have pictures I could show you that I've done it. Heck yeah. <laughs> so, um. I think I sent it to you. This is a while ago. Um, so that's that's how I would recommend cooking the California spiny lobster. Um, Interesting. So I've never done it that way. You Again, should, you should do it because I have a charcoal. I got I got the dinkiest charcoal grill. But I'll bring I over. Think... I'll bring over my. Uh, I have a Japanese like hibachi like a yeah yeah yakitori grill. Yakitori. That's what I cook everything, all this kind of stuff on. So I can I can put that in my car and bring it over anytime you want. <laughs> let's do it well dude we've been talking for over two hours oh good well there should be some con some usable content <laughs> right <laughs> all right so uh let's wrap this up and um uh you know be done so thank you everybody for listening and i hope you enjoyed uh alex uh any parting words you want to tell anybody about anything else promote anything no. Okay. <laughs> That's totally Not fine. Yet. Uh, well, if you guys uh, want to see any videos or photos that went along with this episode, once again, please check out YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram, Ocean Folk Podcast. Appreciate you guys for hanging out with us. Have a good one. <laughs>